Hello, and welcome back to Talk Some More Stephen King. Now, today we're talking dangerous pets, and no, I don't mean wives, because we've reached Cujo. It was released in cinemas in 1983, and that turned out to be the year for King releases, with three movies unveiled, with this being the first. It might be the first, but was it the best? So to discuss this, we have myself, Jeff, Graham, and joining us, Niall from Movies in Focus. Hi, Niall, how are you doing? I'm all good. Uh, thank you for having me yet again. It's, it's definitely a, a change of pace from uh, Salem's Lot, I think. Yeah, very much. For our listeners who don't know Cujo, it's the tale of a rabid or rabid, depending on where you're from, St. Bernard who terrorises Donna Trent, as played by Dee Wallace and her young son. Cujo contracts his disease through bats. Now, I know bat transmissible diseases sounds very far-fetched today and it'll never happen, but hey, this was the 80s. Now, interestingly, the book has some elements which follow on from the dead zone, although most of those were jettisoned for the movie. So it could almost be a sequel to a film that in fact wasn't released until after this one. Confused? Don't worry, by the end we'll sort it out. So my first question to you guys, have you read the book? Um, I haven't. It's, it's one of the uh, sort of Stephen King books I've never read, simply because the, the concept doesn't thrill me. And, uh, spoiler, after watching the film, I, I don't think it'll be on the top of my reading list. <laughs> well, it is very different. I mean, uh, yeah, I've read the book and it is very different. There's completely different ending which we'll talk about later but it goes into a lot more detail about the problems in the advertising agency which we're going to talk about also the comparison of the two families the working class families the middle class family and there's a huge piece about charity camber and her son when they're away and why they don't want to go back uh, and how the events work out in their favor that i think was interesting and missing but hey We'll talk more about that as we go through. So, now that was an interesting comment you said there. Clearly, this is your first time watching the film. Um, well, I think I saw it many years ago. Obviously, I was slightly more impressionable. And uh, probably the thought of a, uh, a killer St. Bernard seemed a bit more plausible. But watching it today, I kind of thought, well, it's not very scary. In fact, it's pretty much downright silly. So no wow. tension whatsoever then? No, and I was I was disappointed. I mean, obviously, there are certain elements towards the end um, with, with the car sequence that, that did have a bit of tension. But for me, the whole thing was just a bit melodramatic. Okay, interesting. We're going to explore all that in a moment. Graham? Yeah, I slightly agree with that. I think it's not aged well, but I did find the scenes with the dog and Dee Wallace, really, really quite suspenseful, I would say. Not scary. The suspense was definitely there, and there were some lovely tracking camera shots where the director sells you a dummy, and and you think one thing's going to happen, then another thing happens. And I thought they were quite suspenseful. I agree, the start of it and the love affair and the uh, and all of that at, at the start was a bit, oh, come on, come on, let's get to the action. But when it finally got there, I thought that was quite good and quite interesting. And the other thing I liked, and of course, because it's King, the plotting 
is very, very good. How they get Dee Wallace's character to that lonely place, how they get the family away from the from the ranch, and all of that sort of getting people in the right places, I thought was very, very clever. But as a whole film, not really. Not compared with the, the other King film that we're going to talk about in another podcast, which is uh, The Dead Zone. I thought that was much better. This is certainly showing its age. In book form, Cujo is a sort of sequel to The Dead Zone. Niall, have you read The Dead Zone? Again, no, it's another one I've never got to. I've got to brush up on my king. Okay, have obviously. you seen the film? <laughs> <laughs> the I, again, a lifetime ago, yeah. It's, it's definitely okay. primed for a rewatch. Well, there's, a, there's a whole thing in there with a serial killer, um, Frank Dodds, uh, the car, known as the Castle Rock Killer. He gets killed at some point in the dead zone. It's a subplot. But his spirit infuses the bat that you know bites Cujo. There's a thing that the evil spirit of Frank Dodds is hinted at as being inside Cujo, which is completely cut out for this. In the development of the film, Stephen King originally wrote a script that was thrown out because it was an early script for him and it's far too convoluted. Barbara Turner then wrote a script and she put in all those elements of the supernatural, that there's a spirit inside this bat that bites Cujo. Do you think it would have worked more for you had it taken a supernatural twist or there was no save in this one? No, I I think... That would sort of help it, give it a sort of um, um, almost a uh, child's play Chucky type thing. Because as the the, the opening is, he, you know, so the dog chases a rabbit, sticks his head in a hole, and gets unconvincingly bit in the nose by a a bat. And then he sort of just looks worse for wear as it goes on in a more um, very unrealistic way. And I think that would have added, I, I think, a touch of no pun intended bite to the whole thing. Oh, Oh, touche. What about you, Graham? Going into that that sort of horror supernatural element? I think I'm going to follow that terrible pun. Good grief. Um, That would have been much, much better. The start is appallingly bad. The first thing you see is a cute bunny rabbit hopping around in a field and then a dog chasing it. And you thought, hang on a minute something really scary is going to happen here because he's he's trying to relax me in and nothing really did happen so having a a sort of a supernatural element to the whole thing would have added a great dimension they could have ditched the unfaithful wife bit as well and got rid of that subplot because i didn't think that worked either and giving me something a bit more spooky and interesting and another dimension to the just the killer dog Okay, we'll come back to the wife plot in a minute, but the first shot isn't of the rabbit. It's of a title card with blood, a red, swirling around. And the reason for that is exactly because of what you said. Originally, it started with the rabbit, and they were worried that people would think it's a Disney film, so they had to put something right at the very front to show that it wasn't a Disney film, which is where the title card of Cujo with a swirling red mist or red blood came from. So to put you on edge at that very beginning. <laughs> Completely failed for me uh, then. Yeah, that's all work. I saw was yeah. the rabbit. 
I've got a tough audience tonight, guys. Okay. Um, so, as I said, Barbara Turner wrote the script. The film was to have opened with a bat on the grave and then fly off into the town. In fact, the graveyard they used is seen later on in the film, but only briefly. Now, she was writing for director Peter Medic, who had had a huge hit with a ghost story a couple of years before called The Changeling with George C. Scott and would later go on to direct one of the better British films of the 80s, The Craze. Unfortunately, he spent a long time setting up these camera shots of this bat flying and the producer, because this is quite a cheap production, wasn't satisfied. So Dan Blatt, the producer, fired him and then took a recommendation from Stephen King. Now, King is a huge fan of a film called Alligator, the script by John Sayles, quite a fun movie about giant alligators in New York. And so Lewis Teague, on King's recommendation, was hired. Blatt said to him, right, you got a day to sort yourself out. And he said, well, can't I have two? Okay, but no more. He had two days. He came on, his uh, director of photography was Jan de Bont, of course, later went on to direct Speed. So that threw the whole thing up in the air to start off with. And again, considering both of your views on this, do you think that didn't help the situation at all? Or do you think that, okay, you didn't like it, but it was a consistent whole? Um, I think I think Medic um, would have been great. I think The Changeling's an incredibly atmospheric film, just sort of reeking with, with, with atmosphere. Lewis Teague is pretty much a journeyman. You know, you look at his, the, the films that he's done and he's pretty much a director for hire. And I think that's pretty much what you got with Cujo. And Jean Dupont, you know, a good cinematographer. In fact, as bad as the opening is with the dog running through the after the, the rabbit, it does look quite good in a Disney movie sort of way. So I think it... <laughs> the changing director hobbled the movie from the get-go. Okay. Graham, do you want to add to that? I was just going to say, yeah, the seven dwarfs in the back just overdid it for me, really. I don't think they should have added that to the film. Uh, he only had two days to get to set up and go on this film. That That's, yeah, he might be a journeyman director, but God, that's a hard task to accomplish. And it looked quite good there were some great tracking shots as i said earlier on so he did deliver the goods and it and for the last 30 minutes i think of the film it's it's really quite tense and intense i would love to have seen peter medic's uh take on it i'm sure that uh chasing that rabbit had been a bit more interesting okay so i'm just going to set my stall out here for a little bit and i saw this film when it first opened in british cinemas in 83 I didn't think that much of it at the time. I thought it was okay, nothing special. Coming back to it now, I was quite impressed. And there's a number of things I'm impressed with. And as we go through, I'll pick up on them. So I'm sort of much more in tune with this film than I think both of you are. So I think that's going to make for an interesting discussion as we get to points. Now, let's stay with Teague's direction, because it's a film of two halves. First half is the character pieces, the build-up, and getting them to where they need to be for the second half of the the terror. And I want to talk about that first half, because I think that's the half that you guys are going to kick out first, because I bet you're going to tell me now you think it's a soap opera. Niall? Well, I think it's a soap opera. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh, I think 
<laughs> one of the great things about Stephen King is what he he does is he he, he writes characters so well, and he he puts his characters always in sort of realistic characters in these fantastical situations. And for me, as as much as soap opera that it was, it could have been well done, but it wasn't because there there wasn't enough to it. It felt like it was lip service paid to plots that were in the book, and they just wanted to get through to the the killer dog action at the end. But it was just it it didn't work on a balance level for me. I I fully agree that. Uh, King's characters are f- completely three-dimensional and always very nicely developed and, and their motivations become clear. I really didn't get that with this uh, film and I think they've missed the point of King completely. I'm glad King went off in another direction and went really down the supernatural and science fiction and very hard-baked detective novels that he did after this because if he'd continued to produce these sort of thrillers I think his career would have ended right there and this is a bit of a turning point for him and certainly the film that comes after this The Dead Zone is just so much better I know it's got a world-class director but this was a very I find it a bit flat in the start and until you get to the action, and even the action, yeah, killer dogs, that's fine, but we have sharks and we have crocodiles and alligators and things like that. It's not doing the Stephen King thing. It's not taking us somewhere fantastical. It's just a sort of some sort of killer animal trope, and we've got lots of those, and what King does is always something very different. I didn't find that translated in this i don't know whether it's in the book because sorry i haven't read the book but those king type cleverness didn't seem to come through in this film well for me anyway jeff okay well for me it did uh because yeah i've read the book and we'll look at the characters here because and this is where i'm starting to disagree and go off because i didn't think it was a soap opera as such because king writes fantastic female characters and it's all through his literature Brennis, I thought the male characters were interesting. I thought the character of Steve Kemp, as played by Christopher Stone, there's a lot more to him in the book that he's almost like a, a failed hippie. Look, I live in Stroud, so I'm surrounded by these sort of people. <laughs> Most of them are vaccine deniers now, so I can understand where they're coming from. So he is a totally repellent character, but he's a strong alpha male. You know, he says to at one point to Vic Trenton, you haven't got the right tools for the job. We clearly know what he meant by that. Um, <laughs> so he's got a strong character. Then you've got Joe Camber as played by Ed Lauter. You get the inference that, you know, this is a domestic abuser, which he certainly is. There were scenes filmed that were cut out showing what he was like. They're, they're very much there in the book. His family, his wife, Charity, was determined to get the son away. She didn't want young Brett become like his dad. So I thought that's a very strong personality and so you've got two alpha males so right in the middle of this you've got vic trenton and vic trenton to me comes across as a feminized male character in that he's not there with his wife he's more in tune with his business partner and the interesting thing the only time he becomes alpha male is after that comment about you ain't got the right tools 
when he starts to realise that Steve Kemp's having an affair with his wife. And you see him working on a car because that's what alpha males do. And he's getting angry because he can't get it to work. Other than that, he's just a drip, really. So I, I think he's got the balance of those characters, those alpha male characters and a character that's trying to be more progressive, I thought were quite right and quite interesting. I've spoken a long time about that. Let's hear you two shoot me down in flames. <laughs> well, I think the characters, they had the potential, I think, to be very interesting and probably in King's book, probably bet money that they are very interesting. Sort of the, the, the D. Wallace affair subplot, it's just there and... It, I don't know if it was because it was around the time of, you know, you Dallas and you kind of Knott's Landing and and those sorts of soap operas where that they they were, I'll use the word risque, but you know, they were they were showing normal people having affairs, which probably wasn't as in TV as much as it was until then, and it, it sort of that seems to be a lip service, a kind of a bit of a melodramatic subplot. And I would say I, I really wanted to know more about what happened with this, the breakfast cereal more than anything else. I could have watched a movie about that. <laughs> yeah, that was in King King's script, that one, actually. They they got the professor to apologize. Right. You see, that, oh, that, okay. it is sort of, there's no payoff to that. It's just there and then it's gone. And the whole thing with the relationship between him and his business partner, it's a stronger relationship than between him and his wife. You know, he never listens to his wife, but he's always listened to what the partner says to him until at the end when he when he finally says, no, I'm going to break from this, I'm going to go back and, and sort my family out. I, I like what you're saying about, yeah, the time of Dallas and all of that, because Lewis Teague did come up through TV. You know, he'd made film, uh, TV series, things like episodes of Vegas and Barnaby Jones, so he'd have been steeped in that type of filmmaking. And again, if you get only given a short time to get up and running, you're going to fall back on what you know. And I think that sounds quite interesting for tying in with the soap opera and why I would agree that the first half of the film is fairly flat in its direction, which I don't think is something you can put to the second half. I did find that the um, the male characters were a bit um, cardboard cut out. Really, uh, I wanted to know more about the uh, Camber family, uh, Joe Camber and his, what he was doing. But it was all alluded to, and nothing pretty gritty came out of that. And I could see how there'd be a, a, an interesting dynamic there between him and Dee Wallace's husband, and Vic. But nothing really got developed in the way I thought it was. I did. I do agree that most of the male characters or some of the male characters seemed a bit in the background and, and King had written this very strong woman in Donna. The problem was I was not very engaged with it, to be quite honest, for the first half hour or so. You're right now, you've reminded me, this is a bit Peyton Place. This is a bit, you know, not landing or... Dallas, whatever the other terrible shows were of the time on TV. And so I, I was more interested in how the dog was getting on, you know, as he as, it, as the dog became more and more rabid, you know, and they kept jumping across for a quick update from the dog. I find that the male character is pretty uninteresting, um, apart from Joe, because <laughs> I wanted to know 
what was going on with him and his wife. How did she win the lottery? How did she get out of uh, town that quickly? Was there something else going on there? And I presume that's all in the book. It didn't translate onto the screen. Picking up on your comment there on Joe Camber, he's played by Ed Lauder, and of the three yeah. of them, you know, this is a, an actor who stood out. He always played the supporting roles, he always played the heavy. He played the villain in Hitchcock's last film, Family Plot. He was, you know, one of the mean guards in The Longest Yard or Mean Machine, the Burt Reynolds version of it. Oh, great film. Great Films film. like Breakout Pass with Charles Bronson, again, played these tough characters. So when you see Lauder, he brings that presence with him. So while you haven't got the scenes in the film that were filmed showing how nasty a character he was, you sort of take it with him that he's a bit nasty, but he seemed to like his dog, so he had a good side to him. <laughs> but the the other two I will accept were I mean, Christopher Stone's career never really took off, and the other chap, came out of TV into this from daytime soap operas, never went anywhere. Any thoughts on performances, Mark? Again, they were, they were decent. I think, I mean, Dee Wallace is a good actress, as is Ed sort of Lauder. He's good. They do what they're asked to do. But again, I think everything's so superficial. They're not really performances. They're just playing characters that are doing things that, they obviously need to do in order to go from A to B to C in order to get a killer dog attacking people. You know, if if you look at, for example, Jaws, you you get all those sorts of things within Jaws, but the characters are brilliant and the the horror elements are brilliant. Whereas in Cujo, everything's just okay at its best. Okay, well, I'll just take up that before I go to Graham. Mm. If you take Jaws, does a female character resonate in Jaws? Not really, no, no. You know, whereas I think D. Wallace, or D. Wallace Stone, as she later became, really resonated. I mean, King said that he felt it was the best female performance in any of his films, and I think she does a tremendous job in this. Yeah, I mean, I think... I, she, I would certainly agree with that. I think she's very good because she's a great actress, but I don't think... I think she overcomes per material, from my perspective. Okay. No, no, no that's, that's fair. That's fair. Graham? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think she is excellent in it. And she plays the, the level of terror really, really well. I didn't find her sort of uh, cheating on her husband bit very re- believable in, in the start of the film. But when, when she gets in the car and they get to the the lonely garage place that they go to, I thought she really, really nailed the, the, the level of terror. And, and it was terror on two levels. There was the terror outside the car and the terror inside the car that her son was dying and all of that sort of thing. So I thought that worked very well. And she was head and shoulders above everybody else in the cast, I think. And it was her film. She was the one person that took this film from sort of average to slightly above average. I was watching it thinking, why did she not become a bigger star in the 80s? Yeah. You know, because, and because I mean, she was obviously in The Howling, she was in E.T., you know, big movies. And she just became a, 
a genre actress that would appear occasionally, which I think is a a shame. Do you think she was always a genre actress, though, wasn't she? She started off, I mean, she had a small role in 10, so I remember her in, but really the howling was the, the, the thing that made her name, and then she had, obviously, E.T., she played the mother in that, and after Cujo, she was in, well, I remember in The Frighteners, but she did a lot of TV work. In fact, ironically, and I'm just looking down her credits now, she then starred in Alligator 2, The Mutation. <laughs> oh, great film. Great yeah. film. Well, you wait You wait till this sequel, COVID-2, The Mutation. Oh. Um, but, yeah, there's a hell of a lot of TV work she did. So maybe the roles just weren't there for her. Yeah, or maybe she played a mother too young. You know, she with ET and this. Yeah, you know, she was she was seen as being a mother, whereas she she wasn't the female lead or the romantic lead because of that. Well, well she had a good role in Ten, uh, the Dudley Moore comedy. She was one of the few in that cast that didn't really benefit from it. You know, certainly Dudley Moore, Julie Andrews, Bo Derek, all come out of that film. In fact, even Sam Jones come out of that. Okay, she just faded. And then E.T., a couple of years later, brought her back. I think she's fantastic in mm. E.T. because she's totally ditzy. You know, and she plays that sort of, she's very, oh, ditzy's a bit a bit condescending. She's a, a bit scatty, probably. And she plays that role so well. She's distracted all the time. She's got her own problems going on. She's trying to bring up the kids on her own. And there's an alien in the house that she doesn't know about. So um, I thought that was wonderful, um, piece of wonderful play by her. And she's great. And, you know, the emotional bits at the end for her, were she delivered well. She seems to shine in the third act of most films, really, that I've seen her in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Even the Frighteners. I met her once, actually, at a convention. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, she's a really nice person. Oh, right. Really nice. Yeah, she was telling a story about when she was working on The Frighteners and they were filming it in New Zealand. That's when her husband, Christopher Stone, had the heart attack that uh, eventually killed him. And she couldn't get out. I mean, it was a remote part of New Zealand. And it was Peter Jackson who stepped forward and paid for her flight, sorted out the plane to get her to where she had to get to so she could get back and be with her husband. The producers of The Frighteners weren't really doing a great deal to help. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. I'm, I'm still interested in, in her character in this film because I could see it, and, and I'm curious now as well as I see it because I read the book. The reason she has the affair is because of the feeling that she's getting, you know, she's in Castle Rock, and this, by the way, is the first film that was in the fictional town of Castle Rock, yeah. but she's feared that she's trapped what you see as the story progresses, and again, I accept there's not much of it in the film, but you got this contrast between her middle-class family, where she fears she's trapped, and Charity Camber and her story, which is the working-class story, where she does all she can to survive. And this conflict of middle-class and working-class, which is a really big theme in the book, did that come across to you or not? I can see that it was there, and again, on a very superficial level, and again, through the cinematography and set design, you know, the the, the different houses and the colouring ones, very kind of grey and run down. 
and everything else is sort of bright and beige. Um, but apart from that, I, I again, I, I think everyone was so lightly sketched that I, I, I didn't think, for me, I didn't think it came across. I thought it was going to turn interesting when um, the two women, Charity Camber and Donna Trenton, have that moment together outside the house. Charity's actually peeling potatoes or something or doing something out in the sunshine. And they have this moment, but it didn't really go anywhere because I thought, no, here's two women both trapped by circumstances. And are they going to work together? Is some clever wordplay about to happen? And it didn't, you know, she just picked up the bowl and walked back into her house and Donna Trenton went and did something else. So, yeah, I think, again, I'm sure it's a million times better in the book didn't really come off the uh, the celluloid for me really okay let's look at the second half of the film the horror part a middle class woman trapped in a working class environment does it work does the tension work and i'm going to throw that right back at you jeff first Did it work think, for you yeah i think it does you know she's driven into that area with Tukamba to fix the car but she's actually trapped now in a working class environment so the very things that she's been trying to escape from in the first half of the film, she's back in it now with bells on. Yeah, the whole look of that farm, it's desolate, it's run down. It's a hell of a life, hell being the operative word. And I, I think it does. You, know, you, you get the impression of that heat, that oppressiveness, even though it was filmed in the depths of winter. It was freaking <laughs> bloody cold. They had to have heaters in the car. Uh, but you get that real tension that comes through. Uh, and that farm was haunted as well. So, you know, it all works. Here we go. It was. No, no. Somebody that lived on that farm hung themselves from a tree. Obviously not, not during filming. It was before filming. And the 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 mother of the young boy uh, who was on set with him at all times, she picked up on the fact that this had a ghostly presence in that film. So it all adds to that air of, of menace and tension for me. The film gets better as it goes along and the finale is the best part of it and again the farm effectively represents hell doesn't it you know that that's the thing it's kind of you know you 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 go from your your lovely suburbia to suddenly something that you know looks like it belongs at the back of norman bates's house you know it's it's got that look about it king always kind of plays with those the rich and the poor, doesn't he, in, in his novels. So that has obviously come from him. And I think it, it sort of, it works, but it, it works, I think, in isolation from the rest of the film, from my perspective. But do you not think as well that there's in in her mind, and she's almost having a, um, a religious thing, a penance, that, you know, I, I, I sort of like slept with this guy, I've, potentially broken my family down at this stage we don't know if it's going to get back together again i'm being punished for what i've done do you think that plays into it i think it does i mean it's it's the whole again the the, the mother aspect you know which i think d wallace is very good at you believe her love for the boy sort of makes up for a multitude of, of, of feelings for it as a film but no i i think again going back to her performance she sells it you know she really does sell the situation and i think the editing is great in, in that sequence too get back in that barn damn you 
Oh, the editing and the camera work. So, so uh, I, I think, yeah, they they really got that down pat. If they remade Cujo today, you'd have jump shock after bloody jump shock all the way through it. There's one jump shock in this. It's when the camera pans and you think the dog, you think the camera is the dog. It's coming up behind her, but it's not. And she's settling the boy down and then the dog jumps up from the other side. That's the only jump shock. Every other time he does it, he, the camera shows you where the dog is. So he does a Hitchcock level of suspense. She's this side of the car. You know, but she doesn't. The dog's the other side of the car. And I think that is much more effectively. I mean, what do you guys think? That whole sequence has a, a great amount of tension. In fact, what you, were, you were just talking about that, about sort of scary moments. I was thinking about the, the opening where they allude to this haunted wardrobe that the kids got. Just there, I think, to kind of set up the fact that it's supposed to be a horror film, even though it's got nothing to do with it. Which is, by the by, just in what we're talking about, but it, it just, again, that stands out as something that was just added in as a, a bit of tension. But no, I, I totally agree with, with, with that jump shot towards the end. It, it, it sells that, it does show good filmmaking in a film that I think is lacking in good filmmaking. But by the way, talking on that cover, did you notice that one of the toys in it was a uh, St. Bernard dog? No. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Yeah, nice one. <laughs> oh, right, that's not foreshadowing at all. So about that dog, I mean, can a St. Bernard be scary? No. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think the dog just didn't work. Even when you're, you're sort of looking at it as it's supposed to sort of be, become more ill, it just looks sad and pathetic. And it, it doesn't look like it's got the energy to actually maul someone to death. Again, I'm different on this. I mean, I'm not a great fan of dogs and this lumbering bloody thing. I think the thing that got me is the size of it. And and because you had that size, you wouldn't want that thing charging at you. I don't care how much alcohol it's got underneath of its neck. Nothing's <laughs> going to sell it. That I'm going to be waiting around for that thing. It's the size and the brutality that it could do is, is, is what surprised me this time. And and I've got to be honest, the first time I watched it, that was one of the things about it that really knocked me, is that I, I agree with you that I didn't think a St. Bernard could be scary, but it was a big bastard. Cujo! Oh my God, you rabbit. Yeah, I had a bit of a conflicted uh, view of the poor dog. I thought I kept thinking, how much more stuff are they going to put on that poor dog? And he did not ask to act in this film, and and also. He did, as, as Niall said, he did look lumbering, you know, and he suddenly he springs through windows and jumps over things and leaps on the top of the car. And I was thinking, really? It looks like he'd be more successful if he just sat on you. <laughs> you see how Neil gets, who's normally quite quiet, when we take his golf clubs away. So, you know, <laughs> you can understand it. And by the way, you're saying about all that gunk they put on him. Yeah. Uh, the big problem they had, it was quite edible and quite nice to the dogs. We kept licking it off. <laughs> Maybe that's why he was so big. Oh, poor guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, too much. 
actually, uh, Cujo was a mixture uh, of man in a suit, puppets, and various dogs. Um, did that work for either of you guys? Because I couldn't spot the man in a suit, I must be honest. There's a shot, I think, where he's under the stairs or something, and it just looked very big. And I thought, is that a man in a suit? But that was the only time I think it looked outsized compared to anything else. Jeff? Um, funnily enough, there's the same attack, but a different moment in it. It is when he was outside and was leaping up on the guy. I thought that's a guy in a suit, but that's the only time. And I've now seen makings of it. So I've seen the puppet, you know, the puppet heads that charged into the door. And to be honest, when I was watching, I couldn't tell again for a low budget film. And that comes back Nile, to what you were saying about the editing, uh, and the way it's all been put together. It's so good that you just can't spot it. As a continuity of, of different sort of technologies or, or whatever word you want to use, I, I think it it's successful in that. Also, the the cinematography in the third act was exceptional. I mean, where it's bashing the door in and it's bashing the the windscreen as well. Although you know, obviously those must have been puppets. I did think that that was very well done, and the 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 angles that they shot that from just added to the tension. So that all worked for me. When when she was inside the car, I thought that was the best, uh, the best work the dog uh, did during the whole film. Yeah, she said she never wanted to see another Pinto again for the rest of her life. I can imagine. I can imagine crap car. And freezing cold. So you splash with water to make it look like you're sweating, and it is freezing. <laughs> Good grief. Nobody said being an actor was going to be easy. Yeah. So, okay, let's just slightly recap then. So we said it's a film of two halves. You've got the first half, which we said is soap opera-ish. Slightly disagreed on the characters and the way they set out. But the second half is very different in the way that Teague has filmed it. There's tight camera angles, a lot of roaming steady cam work, and some interesting high-level long shots. And we've mentioned the jump shock as well. So does his direction and that editing really work in the second half where it didn't pick up in the first? No? I think it does. And part of me does wonder, is that because of the sheer amount of work that needed to go into the, the entire sequence? I wonder if that was something that was storyboarded by Peter Medak in order to, you know, because obviously you, you said he came in sort of with a couple of days grace. Is that something that was already set yeah. in stone on a shooting level? He couldn't balls it up thinking of it now that you've mentioned that because it is so different. You know, it, it is so kinetic compared to the the, the TV movie-ish of the style of the, the first half. I, I can see where you're going there. Yeah, the the first bit, he was just feeling his way, doing the the standard shots, and really working on the the money shots, as it were, which come in the second half, yeah. which he had to get right, otherwise it wouldn't be scary at all. So they put an awful lot of thought into the second half, and also, you know, he may have been in his comfort zone. He may actually really like doing this type of direction, and and and. F- doing tight shots uh, and tracking and, and, and the dolly shot, as we've already mentioned, is really good where you think the dog's right behind her and it's quite tense. Uh, that's a good theory, and I, I'd probably, yeah, go along with that, Niall. I think that's exactly what's happened. He's, um, they've put, put the effort into the second half of the film. 
One thing has just occurred to me as we were speaking on this. So now we spoke previously on Salem's Lot, and Salem's Lot is supposed to be set in New England. It's supposed to be set in Maine. Both were filmed in California. And to me, both came across with that sort of very much that New England type of feel to it. So you've got the right sort of setting for a Stephen King story. Do you think that's right? I do. I mean, I I think kind of the opposite of what I said. I think that the the opening feels very much more like New England. I think the ending feels a bit more California just because of the the heat. It reminds me of something that you you might have seen in an episode of Knight Rider or the A-Team, you know, probably the MGM Ranch or something or the, the Universal Backlot. It's got that Californian heat thing going on, whereas I didn't see that in the, the first half. Just sticking with the technical on this, Charles Bernstein did the music score, and it was quite interesting for a, a film like this. And I clocked it. For 5 minutes 40 seconds, there's no speaking. He's got full range with that music. It is going, you know, as, as a belter throughout. And I notice he's got an almost shark-like theme for Cujo, copying Jaws a bit, or another film of that time period, Grizzly. How effective is that music score? I keep saying this as the film goes on it gets better I, I think that the opening music score is ridiculous in its lushness it kind of goes into a bit of almost lassie style thing doesn't it as, as he's running across the field with the rabbits but it does it does improve you know like everything else the, the tension builds in that film say what you want about it. most of it from the, the start to the end the tension builds and that comes from the, the storytelling the acting and the editing and the music. So it's something that I think gets better as it goes along. Graham? I actually went back and listened to the the music again on the first part, and there's no foreshadowing in it at all. There's no real theme that gets picked up in the second half. The second half is really very punchy and direct and bang, bang, bang. The first part, I think he was just trying to impress people you know, to get the gig for the first thing. Oh, here's my opening theme, and this is when the dog's running through the fields, and this is what's happening. And then he actually delivers in the second half. I'm really beginning to to, to sound like a broken record. This is definitely a film with two halves, not only the music, then the direction and the storyboarding and the cinematography. They seem to to be two films stuck together, and that might be because of, you know, the, the fact that they got rid of people before, just two days before starting. But, yeah, I, I thought the music in the second half was very, very good, quite dramatic. And and it had this foreboding and foreshadowing and you're thinking, where the hell is that dog at the minute? And that music really drove up the tension. While in the first part, I don't think that worked at all. There were a couple of little bits when you first met 
the Camber family where the music was quite interesting. And I thought, oh, is that trying to tell me something there? But it didn't seem to really stick. So I liked the music in the second half. And I agree with Niall. It was a bit um, a bit pants for the first few minutes, if that's a correct musical term. It's an odd little story about this film. As I said, I saw it when I first got out in the cinema and I picked it up to go through it again on Blu-ray and it's an 18 certificate. And I was convinced it was a 15 when I saw it. And I, and I, I kept thinking because it is gory, but I didn't think it was overly gory. So I just be in my bonnet then about what bloody certificate this film had. And I couldn't find anything on online about it. Uh, and in the end, I went to eBay and looked at film posters, original British film posters that were selling. And sure enough, it was an 18 even then. And I'm a bit surprised by that, to be honest, because, yeah, the yeah, the murders and the biting is a bit gory. Uh, I wouldn't have said it's anything more than a 15. Again, Niall, what do you think? No, again, has it got something to do with injuring the dog? It's the only thing I can really think of. Obviously, people can be sensitive about such things. Um, but again, yeah, I definitely thought a 15 certificate, it wouldn't be anything more than that. In fact, I'm surprised it was an 18. Yeah, yeah, and that's what just set off in my mind. I thought, I just couldn't remember when I saw it what certificate it was. And I just got myself convinced that it was a 15. But yeah, uh, interesting if it was the, the worry about the dog. Great. Graham. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean... Did you find it gory? Because you're a wuss no, with things like this. No, not at all. I mean, I didn't find any of it gory. I mean, it's all implied, but you didn't really see anything. You know, even the last, the twice they tried to kill the dog at the end, I thought, yeah, that's not that dramatic. Maybe I've just been, you know, desensitized over the last 30 years by all the gore, but... The severed arm in Star Wars was probably more gory than most of this film. Yeah, I agree. In fact, going back to Salem's Lot, you know, the, the, that was actually more terrifying than this. And that was a TV miniseries. That's a good point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, yeah. I agree. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the window was just, oh, my yeah, God. This film didn't make me spill wine over myself, I'll be honest. Exactly. Yeah. Just shows, isn't it, really? Jaws gets a PG. Nobody cares about sharks. <laughs> no. Uh, Right, let's talk about uh, the ending. Um, film and book are very different. Jeff, what do you prefer, really? Can you explain how, di how different the, the, the book is? Because it is quite different. Yeah, okay, the kid dies in the book and he lives in the film. Well, and, yeah, and by the way, uh, that's a spoiler alert. On some of our podcasts, this spoiler alert button is now played. Oh, hang uh, on. Spoiler alert. There you yeah, go. great. Just for you, Jeff. Yeah, that's really good, Graham. That's good. <laughs> Doesn't cheapen the podcast in any way. Um, so, yeah, on the one hand, the kid dies um, when she gets him out of the car. And in the other one, the family are united and look like they'll go on together. The interesting thing about the book ending as well is that the couple do stay together. After everything they've been through, you would have thought that would have driven a rift through them and they would have separated but it talks about their pain in the years to come uh, as they suffer uh, because of the loss of a child so which would i prefer quite like the book actually <laughs> 
yeah, no surprise there then, really, is there? Uh, and given we live in strange times anyway, why do you think so many people named their dogs Cujo after the film? This is, I, I've never heard of a dog called Cujo, but I do read online that thousands of people yep. named their dogs Cujo. Usually Trump supporters, you'll find. <laughs> oh, God, is that a- Obviously, it's a, a dog name, so people think it's uh, it's something that maybe sounds cool. No, it didn't exist before this. No, it, yeah, it didn't. It did not exist before this. It was made up just for this. It, it, it's it's a made up name, and nobody ever called their dog Cujo. It's like the Dambusters with with the uh, the name for a black Labrador in there, which obviously we won't say because I'd like this this show to get broadcast. <laughs> I just remembered what the dog's called. That Jeff. That's shocking. So you've got a made up name. It represents something that rips people's throats out and it's pretty evil. And yet people call their dogs Cujo. And I wouldn't mind betting a lot of them are Trump supporters. <laughs> right. Okay. There are no plans to remake Cujo. However, since 2015, every now and again, a film called Cujo, it's an acronym for Canine Unit Joint Operations keeps getting mentioned and it sounds like it's like robot cujos do you think you could really make remake this film and let's be honest if you've got a mobile phone she's got no problem in that car she (laughs) yeah and that's where this all falls down these days yeah yeah no signal though she's in the middle of nowhere that's that's how it works yeah exactly there yeah Yeah. or or her battery dies yeah, yeah that's another good one yeah yeah in the remake the kid doesn't die but the battery does <laughs> yeah the whole thing of some bloody terminator cujo just sounds far fetched so final thoughts in the canon of stephen king's films this pretty much has been left behind these days it was a box office hit but up to that point every king thing was a box office hit and even salem's lot was highly rated on on tv and, you know, you, you look at the range of directors you had up to that point, De Palma, Hooper, Kubrick, uh, George Romero with Crucho just before this, and Cronenberg was well underway with uh, The Dead Zone, and Carpenter was filming Christine, and then you've got Lewis Teague. So it is, in you know, it's almost like a second division, but and I, I know what the answer is going to be from you guys. Is it worthy of more appreciation? No, but I wouldn't. I, I say if you were sitting and it came on TV at eleven o'clock on a Saturday night, and you had nothing better to do, I'd say give it a go. But I, I wouldn't go out of my way to watch it. And yeah. it's only ninety minutes. Uh, that is true, ninety-three minutes. And if yeah, Saturday night beer, pizza, a couple of mates come round whenever that will happen ever again. Um, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's, it's, I think I said it earlier on, it's average. You know, she's good. The second half is great fun, but it's got, it's a really odd King film. It's got none of the supernatural elements, really. I felt a little bit let down. Yeah, so did I. I appreciate it more this time. I did find it far-fetched that when she was running around the car and into the house, she never stood in any dog shit, as there would have been loads of it around her at that time, because that dog had been going for quite some time. But that aside, yeah, I thought it was really, really good. Thank you guys for an interesting discussion. So anybody out there, if you're watching Cujo, have seen Cujo, or 
wouldn't even watch it now because we spoiled the end for you. Um, <laughs> just let us have your thoughts and we'll broadcast them in a future episode on Stephen King. So thank you, Nar. Thank you, Graham, for a fascinating discussion on Cujo. As we said earlier, in many ways, Cujo is a sequel to The Dead Zone, in book form at least. So when we return next to the films of Stephen King, we will actually be discussing The Dead Zone. I hope that, Niall, you can join us later in the year for another one of these discussions. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I, it's it's been love great, to. as always. Yeah, well, appreciate that. And to everybody else, stay well and read King. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.